welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Reed Smith's Arbitral Insights podcast series. This is Gautam Bhattacharya, a partner at Reed Smith. I'm very pleased today to be speaking to my partner, Jose Astigaraga, who is the global chair of our international arbitration practice. Hello, Jose. Hey, Gautam. It's great to talk to you. Just so our listeners know, you're based in our Florida office uh, in Miami. And I'm sure it's much warmer there than it is here in the UK. <laughs> no argument from me. It is very true. <laughs> Pleased to hear that, Jose. <laughs> now, Jose, you were the co-chair of the ICC Commission Task Force that we're going to be talking about today. And you are uniquely placed to talk to us about the topic of today's podcast. But just so the listeners are aware, this podcast is going to be a conversation between Jose and myself about the ICC Commission's report on the accuracy of fact witness memory in international arbitration. And as I said, Jose was the co-chair of that task force. And just in a nutshell, the Commission's report sets out various pointers for international arbitration practitioners to consider and to choose from to ensure that witness evidence in arbitration, which we all know is a very important issue, is the most accurate and the most valuable to the tribunal. And um, Jose, I thank you again for being on this conversation with me. I, I wonder first if I could ask you, what motivated the ICC to commission this task force, which you co-chaired? Sure thing, uh, Gautam. It's interesting. Essentially, this the idea behind this was in a way born 10, 12 years ago, because if you'll remember uh, about that time, there began in the field of arbitration to be a lot of attention placed on the idea of psychological aspects of arbitration. You know, things like cognitive bias and how they influence decision making. And we had a series of programs, including at the IBA, studying this phenomenon that human reasoning isn't really an objective logical computer uh, and rather that it gets affected by subjective factors. Well, when along with that or as part and parcel of that, you had different iterations or uh, aspects of, of those phenomenon that started to be looked at. And Toby Landau actually gave a, a keynote speech on in about 2015 on the idea of the fallibility of human memory. And Toby's premise was, look, a human memory is not as accurate as we all might think. And then beyond that, the way in which the arbitral community is presenting witness evidence may in fact be impacting or, or perhaps making even worse some of the fallibilities in human memory. So the ICC, with all of that background, undertook to see, in fact, how human memory, if you would, was a factor in the reliability of uh, witness testimony. And, and this project resulted from that. 
Thank you, Jose. And, and I know exactly what you mean, because many disputes happen long after the events that are in dispute. And so memories of witnesses are critically important. And also, as we know, witness evidence is not something that's universally utilised in certain civil law jurisdictions, whereas it is very common, or should I say it's more usual in common law jurisdictions. So uh, tell us a little bit about how the task force went about carrying out its work to try to bridge these issues. You bet. You know, let me pick up on, on a point that you made about you know, the importance of, of the witness evidence and, you know, that it's rendered long after the fact. You know, the, the analogy that, that I have used has been that basically uh, arbitrators are archaeologists. And what they're trying to do is to determine what happened, you know, X years ago. And they have to base that on, you know, the scraps or the hieroglyphics or whatever objects, you know, they're finding. And the, the point behind witness evidence being one of those very important elements that they're using to try to reconstruct the past is, are we in the arbitral community, in effect, affecting that evidence in a way that's taking away from the ability of these archaeologists to, in effect, reconstruct the past. But with that, let me let me pick up on, on how the project, uh, the task force, went about its work. One, there has been a lot of uh, research in the area of uh, criminal law, and, uh, and, and in fact, that support the idea that witness memory is not what all that it's made out to be, and therefore they could affect testimony and think about the criticality, particularly in a criminal case, of having witness evidence presented through memory that turns out then to have all of these uh, shortcomings. Now, we had what happens in criminal law is that many of these quote, memories are what are called flash memories. In other words, what happens is somebody witnesses a crime, it's it's flash, they were seeing it, and so on. And that, in and of itself, has a series of aspects to memory. Everybody, uh, you know, many people will remember where they were on September 11th, for example. I mean, boom, it's a flash memory, and it's burned in. On the other hand, the we had task force members that very fairly said, well, but the reality is that's very different from what happens in arbitration, where say that you're having, you know, an engineer live with a project for two years, and it's not a sudden event that they're simply trying to recall. It's a series of interactions and so on. And therefore, gee, is this research regarding memory in the criminal law context really pertinent to uh, international arbitration. Very fair question. And the task force actually then undertook to carry out field studies. In fact, we were fortunate to count on the uh, expertise of one of the leading researchers in this area, Professor Kim Wade. And we, in fact, then in, in working with her, designed a uh, field study with a hypothetical case. And that was then administered to uh, a number of subjects. And what her research found was that, in fact, it was very consistent with what the memory research in the criminal context had revealed and what we'll talk about what some of those features were. And as well, in addition to commissioning that research, the task force then also looked at, and you already touched on it at Gautam, which is the different practices, right? Because the use of witness evidence is not uniform throughout the arbitration world. And there are, whether it's on a local level on or on other aspects, uh, different uses and views with respect to the value of witness evidence. So we undertook basically those two aspects. And once we had that, then we, we came up with some recommendations. Thank you, Jose. And yeah, and the recommendations are 
very interesting. I mean, those of our listeners who have an opportunity to read the report, I think will find it very, very interesting because, I mean, as you've just highlighted, Jose, there is a a, a section where you and the task force um, analyze the issues and set out some of the concerns that, that can arise and some of the issues that should be considered in trying to countervail them. And also at the end of the, well, in the second half, I should say, of the report, there is a lot of that scientific research. I mean, I just wonder, Jose, if you could just briefly touch upon, I mean, because I'm, I'm very interested in the scientific research and the psychological points that you mentioned. I mean, why don't you just tell us a little bit about some of the, um, the key scientific research points that came out and which typically will impact people's recollection of events. You bet, you bet. It's, it's, it really is uh, pretty fascinating. And basically, uh, let me touch on, on essentially three aspects. Uh, again, I would really recommend our listeners to read the report, even independently of the value of witness evidence. I think it's a fascinating read with respect to human memory. But the three that I would focus on is what's called post-event information, you know, biased retelling and the implanted memory. And just to sort of take them one at a time is, let me talk really first about the the misinformation effect and how the specific wording of a question can affect how a witness recounts uh, his or her memory. So there was a study in which you had the subjects were asked to recall, they, they were shown a video, uh, if you would, and some pictures and so on. And they were asked, did you see the broken headlight. And what the research discovered is that the witnesses or the participants in the study who were asked, did you see the broken headline, were far more likely to recall a broken headline, a headlight, than the participants who were asked, did you see a broken headline? Again, just think about the importance of that. With respect to lawyer questioning and, and, and arbitrators listening, and, and of course, the witnesses themselves. Now, there was another example where what I'll call indirect questioning affected the, the memory. So participants, you know, were shown a video clip where there was no school bus uh, had been present at, at all. But uh, again, then some time passes and then they're asked, did you see the children getting on the school bus? And what you, the research found was that the subjects who were asked that question were more likely to recall and say, yes, I saw the school bus, than the subjects who were simply asked, did you see the school bus? So in other words, by asking an indirect question, did you see the children getting on the school bus, the focus is on the children, and you wound up persons misrecalling something that really had not happened. You know, again, from the standpoint of, of lawyers, advocacy and arbitrators being on the lookout for this. Other examples is that, you know, you you had these subjects who would be asked, how long was the movie, right? They're shown a movie. How long was the movie? And they would answer one thing. And then if they were asked how short was the movie, the answer turned out to be shorter. Just to give you the example, in, in the first one, it was 130 minutes versus the subjects were asked how short was it? They responded on average 100 minutes. And, you know, and there's other examples in the in the report that, that go to that issue. So just think about the, the critical power of how you phrase a question. And again, if you're defending about the criticality of being on the, on the, on the lookout for you know, such wording that could in fact affect the, uh, the testimony. I think that the other aspect that I, that I found interesting was what I'll call witness contamination. Certainly it's pretty common, uh, certainly in 
many cases where say you have a, a an event or or say that there's, there's a construction project something goes wrong and you need to interview people and often you, you interview them in in with more than just one person right and multiple people what happens is that it, it turns out that in fact as people interact and talk to each other their memories sort of contaminate each other and by the time that the process is months down the road at times the witness does not recall what is their own memory versus what is the memory of their colleagues and so one of the for example ideas or recommendations not recommendations but tools that is recommended by the reporter says look think about in order to try to maintain the memory as pristine as possible at having conducting the witness witness interviews individually and then sort of doing a debriefing that way and to avoid the, the risk of the uh, what I'll call that the, the cross contamination. I'll just be real quick because there, there's many, you know, many interesting aspects, and, and I'll just wrap up with two of them. I go time. One of them is what's called the biased retelling, and that was there. There was an experiment in which you had essentially subjects, and they were told a hypothetical scenario. So you need please write a letter to the university about your uh, roommate, and in they took three different groups. One one group they said write up letter to the university complaining about your roommate. The other one was write a letter to the university speaking well of your roommate. The other one is, uh, you know, just write to the university about your roommate. And what they discovered is that depending on the perspective that that person is asked to adopt, you know, they will remember the story in a certain you know, in, in certain ways and remember certain things. And in fact, the study that we did, uh, in fact, validated that uh, to bring that to international arbitration. In particular, we said, you know, assume that you are the manager of the plaintiff company or the claimant company or the defend defendant company. And what you discovered is that what their memory was consistent with the perspective that they are being uh, asked to adopt. So think about that in our cases as, again, how that can affect what someone, by the way, one important aspect of the report, the report does not deal with the witness who is there, who is there to lie. The report is dealing with a good faith witness that is doing their best, but simply is being affected by these uh, memory issues. And so think about that again, as we're say interviewing witnesses or presenting witnesses about how we as counsel and arbitrators need to be sensitive to this idea of the biased or filtered uh, retelling. And the final one, and I'll simply leave this one as a teaser, Gautam, is that there have been experiments uh, and field studies shown where memories can actually be implanted, where people can be, in effect, induced to recall things that never happened. And if you look at the report, there's actually a picture where the particular experiment where there was basically a childhood picture of a child and a parent, which is then superimposed into a balloon. And they conducted these studies that eventually, through a series of interlacing it with other facts, some of the people remember, oh, yes, yes, you know, I remember that that balloon trip. So again, it's just sensitizing us all to the importance of focusing on this as we go forward and trying to bring forth this evidence to the archaeologists that are trying to do their best job at determining what in fact happened. Thank you, Jose. And, you know, that was very illuminating because you highlighted a number of key points there, which uh, we as outside counsel should be very mindful of. Because, you know, as the report says, we as outside counsel have a very important role to play in the preparation, collation of witness evidence and witness statements. And there's no denying that. I wonder if I could touch upon what you think briefly about the role of in-house counsel 
in the witness evidence process because undoubtedly they will have a role and the report mentions that. So I wonder whether you could just give us a sort of a just a snapshot of how you believe it would be best for in-house counsel to approach this issue. You bet. Well, Gautam, it, it's interesting because, uh, again, go back to the, the uh, it's the easiest example I can give you is imagine that there's an incident at a company, you know, whether it's a compliance crisis or, you know, an environmental disaster or whatever it is. The reality is that the in-house counsel are really the, often the first responders, right? In other words, something happens and they, they have to go and in effect, you know, deal with this uh, internally first and foremost. And so many of the things that we talked about where the interview process, you know, do you interview, can you interview people separately if, if at all possible? Um, they are the first ones on the scene and they are the first ones that can control that. Um, and, you know, sometimes uh, we had input from corporate counsel and house counsel who said, look, I mean, it's simply not practical, you know, sometimes. And indeed, if, if you're in a crisis situation, you may not be able to do the individual reports. But on, the, on other times, we had, you know, feedback from the counsel said, no, that, that's exactly right, that that would be very valuable. I happen to have seen it, you know, that the sort of group phenomenon, frankly, in our own cases where I've had a, a, a group of personnel, including some managers, where there's a very dominant personality. And that person, in effect, completely controls the dialogue even within uh, within others. And so that's something that I think in-house counsel in particular can think about when they are managing the situation. So I'll give you another example, and that is good practices. And that is, again, they're there. It's fresh. And one of the things that can be done is to, in effect, encourage the employees that they're dealing with and so on to in effect, make a record. Uh, again, you, you obviously want to protect issues of privilege and, and work product and things like that. But in effect, that's an opportunity for the, the witness, to, the in-house counsel, in effect, say to the witness, okay, let's pause for a minute. We've got to make sure that we know what we're certain as to the information. What is it? And in effect, through that process, it ideally preserve the memory as best as they can so that then when what's called post-event information, the things after the fact, can then be uh, sort of segregated and identified as to what it is that creeps into the, you know, the collective psyche as you go along. Uh, so those are two easy examples of ways in which in-house counsel can, I think, uh, contribute to the accuracy of witness memory in the process. Thank you, Jose. And, and I, you know, and that's really important, as you say, because in-house counsel are much closer to the action. And so they inevitably can play their part. I wonder if I could a touch on arbitrators. I mean, you mentioned that a few moments ago in the conversation. And, you know, certainly over the years, I've had a number of cases where arbitrators are somewhat passive in the cross-examination process of witnesses and sometimes are very active in asking questions. And I actually think it's a good thing if arbitrators are a bit more active in asking questions of witnesses because very often they might uncover a bit of the gilding of the lily, if you like, or misrecollected information by witnesses. Where, oh, you know, what are your thoughts, Jose, uh, in terms of the role that arbitrators can play in ensuring the accuracy of witness evidence? Absolutely, Gautam. And you've picked up on really a theme of the report. And the report is says, look, this needs to be holistic. In other words, every player in the arbitral play, if you would, needs to be mindful and sensitive to A, these phenomenon, and number two, to the role that they can play 
And one of the recommendations of the task force is training. And that is that our arbitrators, the whole community, if you would, but that arbitrators in particular would benefit from training and, and having a sensitivity to these consciously of these issues. That's the, for the first thing. And I would encourage uh, particularly the arbitrators to, you know, read through the report, read through some of the scientific evidence that we put forth, which frankly, as I said, is, is very interesting. And I think that that will help make them more alive to uh, this issue. That, that's the first thing. I think that the second thing at Gautam is to think about the the, the phrasing of questions. Now, unless you have a partisan arbitrator, I think arbitrators do try to phrase their questions in a, quote, neutral way. But in a way, the section in, uh, in which I, I commented about the phrasing of questions becomes, I think, doubly important in the context of an arbitrator, because in the context of an arbitrator, they, in effect, are perceived by the witness with neutrality and as well with authority, right? So if you have opposing counsel that is asking a question, you know, uh, witnesses will often recognize, okay, this is opposing counsel. I've been told I need to listen very carefully and that this person is not asking me, you know, friendly questions and so on. And they may view it and perhaps be more, in effect, uh, aware or careful of what they're doing. If in turn, you're having an arbitrator who is vested with neutrality and as well has authority, I think that the witness could could easily not be as thoughtful or sensitive or as concerned. And therefore, I think that it it is very important that the arbitrator be very aware of the power that they have when they ask their question and therefore think about and look through the report in terms of how the phrasing of a question can impact that witness. Because in effect, they they just hold a, a very, very, uh, like I said, you know, special standing, if you would, that could even change the witness's perception of, of the question. The other thing is one, the report touches on, and, you know, there, there were certainly, uh, I'll say, you know, pushback by, by some and embracing by others. But for example, one of the questions that was raised is, do you, does the tribunal address the issue of witness statement preparation and witness dealing ahead of time? In other words, at, at the procedural hearing, do you, in fact, say, okay, how are we going to go about this? And who's going to prepare the witness statements, you know, et cetera. So that's, food for thought, I'll, I'll call it there. It's one of the tools in this toolkit, if you would, because I, I do think it's important, Gautam, bear in mind, this was, we were very careful not to say, okay, here's best practices, here are recommendations of what should be done. We made it a point to say, look, this is an issue uh, in international arbitration. We've got the scientific research that backs it up. Here are tools with which, you know, you can deal with it in each situation. I, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's always difficult to impose a sort of a recommendations, hard recommendations, because exactly the same thing applies to the IBA rules on the taking of evidence in, in international arbitration, uh, which are there as guidelines. They're not there as absolute must-dos, but they're clearly guidelines. I mean, I wonder, Jose, if I could just raise you know, two more questions with you as part of this conversation. You know, the first one, just intrigues me in terms of sort of the scope of the task force's work, because we all know that witness evidence, love it or loathe it, is never going to go away. So there will never be arbitrations done just on the documents. There will always have to be witness evidence, factual or expert witness. There's always bound to be that. But I wonder whether you could just address this, Jose. My understanding is that the task force's remit was originally described as enhancing the value 
of witness evidence in international arbitration. But ultimately, the focus of the task force was enhancing the accuracy, so not the value, but the accuracy of fact witness memory in international arbitration. Do you think there's a difference, Jose? Oh, Gautam, there's, it, it is a huge difference. And in fact, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the remit, uh, as, as it was originally titled, was, you know, enhancing the value of witness evidence. And if you think about it in terms of the value of witness evidence, that enhancing the value of witness evidence, in effect, has a whole series of aspects independent of memory. Right. So witness evidence is affected by memory. Yes. But witness evidence is affected by a whole bunch of other things, including culture, uh, including language, uh, including uh, how it's presented, uh, the use of written witness statements versus uh, direct testimony and so on. And as we launched the the project, uh, if you would, we did a survey of the task force members, and they were from across the world, and sort of gathered practices and, and comments about how witness evidence is in effect used and in effect received and generated and so on. And what we discovered is that there was a broad, broad range of views about the value of witness evidence, how witness evidence should be presented, the cross-examination the impact of language, the impact of culture, and so on. And what we discovered, we agreed, those were very, very important. And, and as well, for example, I remember I started talking about how we came to this project, which had originally sort of, uh, in, at least in my mind, the origin of it, it began when we in the arbitral community began looking at the psychological aspects, right, cognitive bias and so on. Well, that's an important part of witness evidence as well, is you know cognitive bias, how arbitrators are able to perceive things when it's being communicated to them uh, and how witnesses are affected by cognitive bias and so on. So there's all these aspects, Gautam, that have nothing to do with memory that I think very much impact the value of witness evidence. And essentially, the task force just decided that it the remit would be way too broad and decided and brought back to what really had been the, the, the original uh, sort of immediate impetus for this, which had been, you know, Toby Landau's comment on or, or speech on memory. And so therefore, the, the ultimate assignment, you know, narrowed down to in bettering the accuracy of, of witness memory. Uh, but if you'll see the report, one of the recommendations of the report is very much to uh, encourage the ICC to undertake that study of the broader way or the, or the broader uh, study of how witness evidence, the value of witness evidence can be enhanced in general, independently of that. Uh, and frankly, that was a really fascinating aspect of, of our work as you got the, to hear and, and see the, it's the many different ways uh, in which witness evidence is, is viewed by some. We had uh, some uh, who, who were of the view that uh, really it should be documents, uh, you know, we should have documents only and others that said, well, witness evidence is critical, et cetera. So in effect, we've have teed that up, if you would, that's an American expression, say we put it on, on a pedestal there where hopefully the ICC or, or, or others will pick up this very, very important issue. Thank you, Jose. Yeah. And uh, I just had one last question, which is, this is sort of, again, just to get your sense as to, as to the future. The task force obviously reported on the points covered in the report, but do you think there are any other issues which could be looked at in the future? 
absolutely, Gautama. You know, that's why, I, I, as I said, to, to me, the, I've done a, one of the subjects that's been particularly intriguing to me has been the, the issue of cognitive bias uh, in the arbitral process. And I think that cognitive bias very much affects the, the, the value of witness evidence, uh, both in positive and, and negative ways. And so that's just an example. So I very much hope that the, like I said, that the ID, ICC will take on these other aspects. And in fact, as I say, what I call it is, you know, Witness Evidence 2.0. I, I hope that they will take it to the next level. But let me, in effect, give you an example of why I think there's plenty to be looked at. One of the, the really key, and, and, in, and in a way it even touches on memory, but one of the key issues that came up of differences, if you would, that I identified as I was processing the answers of the task force, you know, worldwide was the view on cross-examination, right? You know, sort of a hot button issue and so on. And one of the questions was, well, A, should there be common law type cross-examination by the advocates or should it be tribunal driven questioning, you know, and so on. Again, in that context, think about the power where I say suggestive questioning. And if you had purely tribunal uh, centered questioning, uh, then think about the importance then of sensitizing arbitrators to the power of questioning and so on. Whereas right now, I think particularly counsel need to be sensitized to that. But one of the key questions became then cross-examination and the, the effect of cross-examination on memory. The task force specifically comments in the report that there was simply not enough research to be able to weigh in on the effect that cross-examination could have on memory, full stop. There is a footnote, though, in the, in the report that says there has been very little research. By the way, you know, the one study that has been done or that we found or referred to, in effect, and you can see it in the footnote, I think it's, it's worth reading, but in effect, what it found is that cross-examined, there were subjects who were given, in effect, a, a, a study and so on. And what they found in this very limited study, I want to make it clear, very limited study, but what they found is that cross-examination tended to make the persons who not give incorrect answers, but rather to, in effect, correct answers that, in fact, were mistaken. And to me, that was intriguing, but there's not enough basis for us to be able to draw a conclusion that that is, in fact, the case. But uh, again, to me, that was just phenomenal issue. I think it would be great to, to have somebody be able to, to look at it. So I, I hope that, it, that there will be a, a 2.0 on this. Well, thank you, Jose. And there's no doubt that uh, this report, which um, the task force uh, has published and you know, which you co-chaired has been incredibly valuable for learning in the international arbitration community. Thank you, Jose, for all the work you've done in co-chairing that task force and for being such a wonderful guest on today's podcast. As always, a delight to speak to you about uh, any issues in the world of international arbitration. And this is a, a, a particularly topical one. So thank you very much, Jose. And I hope all our listeners will enjoy listening to this podcast and will tune in to future podcasts in this series. So thank you very much, Jose. Gautam, thank you so much. Much enjoyed it. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com.
You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Readsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.